Chapter Three of the Agony Column. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peak. The Agony Column by Earl Durbiggers. Chapter Three. With a smile that betrayed unusual interest, the daughter of the Texas statesman read that letter on Thursday morning in her room at the Carlton. There was no question about it. The first epistle of the Strawberry Mad One had caught and held her attention. All day, as she dragged her father through picture galleries, she found herself looking forward to another morning, wondering, eager. But on the following morning, Sadie Haight, the maid through whom this odd correspondence was passing, had no letter to deliver. The news rather disappointed the daughter of Texas. At noon she insisted on returning to the hotel for luncheon, though, as her father pointed out, they were far from the Carlton at the time. Her journey was rewarded. Letter number two was waiting, and as she read, she gasped. Dear Lady at the Carlton, I am writing this at three in the morning, with London silent as the grave beyond our garden. That I am so late in getting to it is not because I did not think of you all day yesterday, not because I did not sit down at my desk at seven last evening to address you. Believe me, only the most startling, the most appalling accident could have held me up. That most startling, most appalling accident has happened. I am tempted to give you the news at once in one striking and terrible sentence, and I could write that sentence. A tragedy, wrapped in mystery as impenetrable as a London fog, has befallen our quiet little house in Adelphi Terrace. In their basement room, the Walters family, sleepless, overwhelmed, sit silent. On the dark stairs outside my door, I hear, at intervals, the tramp of men on unhappy missions. But, no, I must go back to the very start of it all. Last night I had an early dinner at Simpson's in the Strand, so early that I was practically alone in the restaurant. The letter I was about to write to you was uppermost in my mind, and having quickly dined I hurried back to my rooms. I remember clearly that, as I stood in the street before our house fumbling for my keys, Big Ben on the Parliament building struck the hour of seven. The chime of the great bell rang out in our peaceful thoroughfare like a loud and friendly greeting. Gaining my study, I sat down at once to write. Over my head I could hear Captain Fraser Freer moving about, attiring himself probably for dinner. I was thinking, with an amused smile, how horrified he would be if he knew that the crude American below him had dined at the impossible hour of six, when suddenly I heard, in that room above me, some stranger talking in a harsh, determined tone. Then came the captain's answering voice, calmer, more dignified. This conversation went along for some time, growing each moment more excited. Though I could not distinguish a word of it, I had the uncomfortable feeling that there was a controversy on, and I remember feeling annoyed that anyone should thus interfere with my composition of your letter, which I regarded as most important, you may be sure. At the end of five minutes of argument there came the heavy thump-thump of men struggling above me. It recalled my college days when we used to hear the fellows in the room above us throwing each other about in an excess of youth and high spirits. But this seemed more grim, more determined, and I did not like it. However, I reflected that it was none of my business. I tried to think about my letter. The struggle ended with a particularly heavy thud that shook our ancient house to its foundations. I sat listening, somehow very much depressed. There was no sound. It was not entirely dark outside, the long twilight, and the frugal Walters had not lighted the hall lamps. Somebody was coming down the stairs very quietly, but their creaking betrayed him. 
I waited for him to pass through the shaft of light that poured from the door open at my back. At that moment fate intervened in the shape of a breeze through my windows. The door banged shut, and a heavy man rushed by me in the darkness and ran down the stairs. I knew he was heavy, because the passageway was narrow, and he had to push me aside to get by. I heard him swear beneath his breath. Quickly I went to a hall window at the far end that looked out on the street, but the front door did not open. No one came out. I was puzzled for a second, then I re-entered my room and hurried to my balcony. I could make out the dim figure of a man running through the garden at the rear, that garden of which I have so often spoken. He did not try to open the gate. He climbed it, and so disappeared from sight into the alley. For a moment I considered. These were odd actions, surely, but was it my place to interfere? I remembered the cold stare in the eyes of Captain Fraser Freer when I presented that letter. I saw him standing motionless in his murky study, as amiable as a statue. Would he welcome an intrusion from me now? Finally I made up my mind to forget these things, and went down to find Walters. He and his wife were eating their dinner in the basement. I told him what had happened. He said he had let no visitor in to see the captain, and was inclined to view my misgivings with a cold British eye. However, I persuaded him to go with me to the captain's rooms. The captain's door was open. Remembering that in England the way of the intruder is hard, I ordered Walters to go first. He stepped into the room, where the gas flickered feebly in an aged chandelier. "'My God, sir!' said Walters, a servant even now. And at last I write that sentence. Captain Fraser Freer of the Indian Army lay dead on the floor, a smile that was almost a sneer on his handsome English face. The horror of it is strong with me now as I sit in the silent morning in this room of mine which is so like the one in which the captain died. He had been stabbed just over the heart, and my first thought was of that odd Indian knife which I had seen lying on his study table. I turned quickly to seek it, but it was gone, and as I looked at the table, it came to me that here in this dusty room there must be fingerprints, many fingerprints. The room was quite in order despite those sounds of struggle. One or two odd matters met my eye. On the table stood a box from a florist in Bond Street. The lid had been removed, and I saw that the box contained a number of white asters. Beside the box lay a scarf-pin, an emerald scarab, and not far from the captain's body lay what is known, owing to the German city where it is made, as a Hamburg hat. I recall that it is most important at such times that nothing be disturbed, and I turned to old Walters. His face was like this paper on which I write. His knees trembled beneath him. Walters, said I, we must leave things just as they are until the police arrive. Come with me while I notify Scotland Yard. Very good, sir, said Walters. We went down then to the telephone in the lower hall, and I called up the yard. I was told that an inspector would come at once, and I went back to my room to wait for him. You can well imagine the feelings that were mine as I waited. Before this mystery should be solved, I foresaw that I might be involved to a degree that was unpleasant, if not dangerous. Walters would remember that I first came here as one acquainted with the captain. He had noted, I felt sure, the lack of intimacy between the captain and myself once the former arrived from India. He would, no doubt, testify that I had been most anxious to obtain lodgings in the same house with Fraser Freer. Then there was the matter of my letter from Archie. I must keep that secret, I felt sure. 
Lastly, there was not a living soul to back me up in my story of the quarrel that preceded the captain's death, of the man who escaped by way of the garden. Alas, thought I, even the most stupid policeman cannot fail to look upon me with an eye of suspicion. In about twenty minutes three men arrived from Scotland Yard. By that time I had worked myself into a state of absurd nervousness. I heard Walters let them in, heard them climb the stairs and walk about in the room overhead. In a short time Walters knocked at my door and told me that Chief Inspector Bray desired to speak to me. As I preceded the servant up the stairs, I felt toward him as an accused murderer must feel toward the witness who has it in his power to swear his life away. He was a big, active man, Bray, blond as are so many Englishmen. His every move spoke efficiency. Trying to act as unconcerned as an innocent man should, but failing miserably, I fear, I related to him my story of the voices, the struggle, and the heavy man who had got by me in the hall and later climbed our gate. He listened without comment. At the end, he said, "'You were acquainted with the captain?' "'Slightly,' I told him. Archie's letter kept popping into my mind, frightening me. I had just met him, that is all. Through a friend of his, Archibald Enright was the name. "'Is Enright in London to vouch for you?' "'I'm afraid not. I last heard of him in Interlaken.' "'Yes? How did you happen to take rooms in this house?' The first time I called to see the captain, he had not yet arrived from India. I was looking for lodgings, and I took a great fancy to the garden here. It sounded silly put like that. I wasn't surprised that the inspector eyed me with scorn, but I rather wished he hadn't. Bray began to walk about the room, ignoring me. White asters, scarab pin, Homburg hat, he detailed, pausing before the table where those strange exhibits lay. A constable came forward, carrying newspapers in his hand. "'What is it?' Bray asked. "'The Daily Mail, sir,' said the constable. "'The issues of July 27th, 28th, 29th, and 30th.' Bray took the papers in his hand, glanced at them, and tossed them contemptuously in the wastebasket. He turned to Walters. "'Sorry, sir,' said Walters, "'but I was so taken aback. Nothing like this has ever happened to me before. I'll go at once.' "'No,' replied Bray sharply. "'Never mind. I'll attend to it.' There was a knock at the door. Bray called, Come! And a slender boy, frail but with a military bearing, entered. Hello, Walters, he said, smiling. What's up? I... He stopped suddenly as his eyes fell upon the divan where Fraser Freer lay. In an instant he was at the dead man's side. Stephen! he cried in anguish. Who are you? demanded the inspector, rather rudely, I thought. It's the captain's brother, sir, put in Walters. Lieutenant Norman Fraser Freer of the Royal Fusiliers. There fell a silence. "'A great calamity, sir,' began Walters to the boy. I have rarely seen anyone so overcome as young Fraser Freer. Watching him, it seemed to me that the affection existing between him and the man on the divan must have been a beautiful thing. He turned away from his brother at last, and Walters sought to give him some idea of what had happened. "'You will pardon me, gentlemen,' said the lieutenant. "'This has been a terrible shock.' I didn't dream, of course. I just dropped in for a word with, with him, and now... We said nothing. We let him apologize, as a true Englishman must, for his public display of emotion. I'm sorry, Bray remarked in a moment, his eyes still shifting about the room, especially as England may soon have great need of men like the captain. Now, gentlemen, I want to say this. I am the chief of the special branch of the yard. 
This is no ordinary murder. For reasons I cannot disclose, and I may add for the best interests of the Empire, news of the captain's tragic death must be kept for the present out of the newspapers. I mean, of course, the manner of his going. A mere death notice, you understand, the inference being that it was a natural taking off. I understand, said the lieutenant, as one who knows more than he tells. Thank you, said Bray. I shall leave you to attend to the matter as far as your family is concerned. You will take charge of the body. As for the rest of you, I forbid you to mention this matter outside. And now Bray stood looking, with a puzzled air, at me. You are an American, he said, and I judged he did not care for Americans. I am, I told him. Know anyone at your consulate, he demanded. Thank heaven I did. There is an undersecretary there named Watson. I went to college with him. I mentioned him to Bray. Very good, said the inspector. You are free to go, but you must understand that you are an important witness in this case, and if you attempt to leave London, you will be locked up. So I came back to my rooms, horribly entangled in a mystery that is little to my liking. I have been sitting here in my study for some time, going over it again and again. There have been many footsteps on the stairs, many voices in the hall. Waiting here for the dawn, I have come to be very sorry for the cold, handsome captain. After all, he was a man. His very tread on the floor above, which it shall never hear again, told me that. What does it all mean? Who was the man in the hall, the man who had argued so loudly, who had struck so surely with that queer Indian knife? Where is the knife now? And, above all, what do the white asters signify, and the scarab scarf-pin, and that absurd Homburg hat? Lady of the Carlton, you wanted mystery. When I wrote that first letter to you, little did I dream that I should soon have it to give you in overwhelming measure. And, believe me when I say it, through all this your face has been constantly before me, your face as I saw it that bright morning in the hotel breakfast-room. You have forgiven me, I know, for the manner in which I addressed you. I had seen your eyes, and the temptation was great, very great. It is dawn in the garden now, and London is beginning to stir. So this time it is good morning, my lady. The Strawberry Man End of Chapter 3